0: All right. we are looking at the process and general content of discipleship. Uh, We looked at the Great Commission, which is focused on discipleship, not evangelism, though evangelism is a necessary part of that. It's not the whole of it. Uh, Birth and evangelism are two ways people are brought into the kingdom of God. Those who are born into the community are discipled through what we call spiritual formation, Those who convert through evangelism must be discipled through spiritual transformation. And those who were formed or transformed improperly uh, need to be remediated through reformation or reformation, right? So the process differs a little bit because of the age differences and the content background. But the content of the discipleship is actually the same. So we looked at the foundation... I have that here. Uh, Foundation being grace, that unmerited favor that God has given us that must be the basis of our security because if it's performance, if it's doing, uh, then we're going to be in trouble. So uh, grace becomes our foundation and our strength. We grow in grace by humility and uh, then grow in knowledge. Then we looked at faith, hope, and love. And I looked at those last time in the uh, context of uh, faith that love is the basis of God's doing for us. He has chosen to love us. He has given us promises. Those promises become our hope. The hope then is not yet. So we wait for it. We wait for it walking by faith. Trust in the one who promised that he will bring that about. And the scripture tells us that uh, when faith has reached its goal, the hope is realized, then faith and hope are gone, but love remains. And so the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Today we're going to look at lordship. We finally reach the foundational flooring, if you will, of all that we build in our Christian life and discipleship, that underground that solid rock of grace, uh, that process of faith, hope, and love that undergirds everything that we do, finds its expression in lordship. So I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 46 to 49. Interesting verse. Uh, A lot of people have the idea that uh, as long as we uh, confess Jesus as our Savior, uh, that's it. There's nothing much else to do. Uh, and that is really an alteration of the biblical message. So, um, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says he's doing a sermon similar to the one we find in Matthew uh, that begins with the Beatitudes and then uh, concludes with these words. Uh, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And then when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against the house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted... Uh, on my words, is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of the house was great. Uh, Jesus uses this notion of building our house on a rock, or on sand, as in one of the texts says, and the storms of life, the temptations are going to come along. We're going to talk about those next week. And what happens is uh, the house just can't stand. It just comes apart. But if it has a solid foundation, that foundation being grace and faith, hope and love, trusting of God, uh, and then uh, building on hearing the words of the Lord and doing them, then it will build a house that can stand. So, today we're going to consider lordship. Lordship is a, uh, a funny term. We use the word lordship uh, in somewhat an extra-biblical way. It's based on biblical texts, but the Bible doesn't uh, talk about lordship quite the way we do. Um, and the reason for that is that we have a little bit in English translations of a problem dealing with the terms. So, in our English translations of the Bible, we use the word Lord in three uh, ways. The first one is a Hebrew word. (coughs) Excuse me. The word Lord is Adonai. Meaning a person of honor or authority who has that authority over his servants... And over his subjects, uh, the other Hebrew word that is translated "Lord" in many of our uh, Bibles is the divine name, the Hebrew letters Yud Hey Vav the divine name given by Moses. Well, the Jews when they get to this term uh, don't say the name, don't pronounce it; they just say Hashem, the name, the uh, name. In our English Bibles. Uh, particularly in the NASB and others like it, the word, when the divine name is there, not the word Adonai, but the divine name, uh, it will be done with uh, what we call all caps. It's a capital L and in small caps of the ORD. So you can actually tell in your Bible when it's referring to Adonai, uh, someone who is a master or an authority over someone. Uh, And when it is the name of God. Now in the Greek, the, the word for Lord is Kyrios. Kyrios means, again, a person with honor and authority over their servants and over their subjects. So in that sense, Kyrios and Adonai are equal and could refer to God or to a person. A person who has authority over someone. Historically in English, they would call them a lord. And so that word then became used in the Bibles in that that way. So the English word lord is equivalent to the Kyrios and the Adonai. So uh, the idea though of God using his name connected to this. So when you see the word Lord God in the scriptures, it will usually be the divine name and then the word Elohim. It's identifying God by his name. Um, So, uh, that becomes a little bit confusing for people as to when it is that. If you have a Bible that uses the caps, then you know where the divine name is, is found. Now, God uses his name to establish his authority and his honor over those who are his. So in Exodus chapter 20, and you're familiar with this text because it is the text of the giving of the commandments. God begins this uh, when he speaks the commandments. He starts by saying, I am the Lord, there's that divine name, your Elohim, your God. "...who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery." And then God gives the commandments that he wants his people to follow. In other words, God invokes his name as the one who delivered Israel and therefore he has authority over them. They were slaves of Pharaoh and now they are God's servants... Now, we might use the word slave there as well. The problem is that the word slave for us has a negative connotation. Uh, in the ancient world, it could have a negative or a Uh, just a common understanding that someone was in charge of the other one uh, because we have this whole culture of freedom. We somewhat see slavery in negative terms. Plus, in the American experiment, uh, the use of slavery here was a kidnapping, enslaving someone against their will, not someone who has given themselves over to someone else, which is part of this uh, this difference. So, God says, you will do this, you will not do that, I am the Lord. Now, in Leviticus chapter 18, uh, I want to just give you a couple of passages uh, for this. If you go through the Torah, you will see God doing this constantly, where he says, you will do this, you will not do this, I am the Lord. And he uses his name. And uh, that is that notion that we use of lordship, though the scriptures aren't exactly using that word, but they are meaning that idea of authority over someone. So, in Leviticus 18, uh, verse uh, 1 through 4, it says, "...the Lord spoke," that's the divine name, "...spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the divine name, your God, the Lord your God." You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. Nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accordance with them. I am the Lord your God. See what he does? He does this notion of telling who he is. I'm the one who is... In charge of you. You are not going to act like the Egyptians. And you are not going to act like the Canaanites. You are not going to act like the cultures around you. You are going to act in the ways that I teach you. And follow my ways. I am the Lord. I am Hashem. The name. Now this is really important. Uh, It's the idea that the Lord has full and complete authority. And honor which we as his people, Jews and Christians, must acknowledge. And he has the authority and power to command us and also to judge us if we disobey. Now what is that basis of lordship? Why can the Lord do that? Uh, there are two reasons why the Lord can do that. The first one is found in Genesis 26, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. You don't have to turn there, you know that text. Uh, It is the text that says that in the image of God, God created man and woman in his image. That idea in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The idea that God is creator is one of the foundational uh, reasons why he can tell us what to do because the creator has authority over the creature. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9, that passage I do want you to turn to. In Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 17. The, the scripture says, The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who is resisting his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honor uh, and another for common use? If God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, he endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand." Um, Even those whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, what is Paul's point? Paul's point is this. This creation is not about you. I know in a humanistic modern sense, it's very hard for us to grasp that. That this is not about us. It's about God. That God created for his own purpose, and we are created ...for his purpose... ...and we don't really have the right to say... ...I don't like your purpose... ...I'm going to change it. Now, that's the essence of sin. That's what mankind does. But God even uses that... ...to bring about his glory... ...and his purpose. But the notion is... ...that ultimately... ...he's the potter... ...he's the creator... ...we're the created... ...we're the clay... ...we have no right to say to him... ...he has the right to do with us... ...whatever he wants... And Paul makes that uh, abundantly clear in this context. So, because God is creator, he has authority over all of his creation, whether we believe him or not. And in that sense, he will be the judge of the whole earth, not only those of us who have bowed the knee to the Messiah, but to uh, he will be the judge of all mankind uh, and has the right to do that and to... Bless or curse on the basis of their behavior. Now, the problem with that, as you might think, is well, okay, I get it intellectually, but it kind of sounds like God is just capricious and does whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants, but he's not capricious. Okay? So, the other reason that God is Lord is because he is. A good God, a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God of redemption. So I want you to look at some passages based on that. In Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now God is speaking to Israel. We have to be careful about extending... Uh, from Israel to us in a replacement sense, but we can extend it from Israel to us in the sense that the purpose of God includes Gentiles in what he is doing with Israel. So Moses summoned the Israel and said to them, "'Hear Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully.'" The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. And I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare the word of the Lord. And you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So we're back to this idea that that God's reason for giving us the commandments are based on the idea that God is loving and redemptive. And he has redeemed them. He took them out of slavery and he brought them now that he might bless them as a people. And so in that context, he gives them the commandments and tells them what they are to do. We have a similar passage uh, that includes us clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, beginning at verse 12, Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sins, as, uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under the law but grace. What then? Shall we sin that we may because we are not under the law but under grace may it never be? Do you not know that who you present yourselves to you become slaves for obedience? You were slaves you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Either you are a slave to sin, resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. Thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now he says, I'm speaking in in human terms here uh, because of the weakness of your flesh. In the same way that you presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, now present yourselves, members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in your sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So his argument is, you're going to serve someone. You can serve sin leading to death and destruction. Or you can serve God, leading to life and righteousness and holiness. Now, the struggle of that is that our mind and our body are not going to be in agreement. We'll talk about that next week. I'm trying to get the general premise of lordship down here first. So, we have been redeemed. He tells us in this text uh, later that we are to glorify God in our Body, which is his. Oh, I read uh, Romans six, didn't I? I should have read First uh, Corinthians six. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going. The the context is the same in both those chapters, uh, but uh, Paul is a little clearer in Corinthians. That's why I use that. I should have cleaned up my notes here. In First uh, Corinthians... now I'm in Second Corinthians. I gotta watch out for this. In First Corinthians six, uh. He says, six twelve. yeah. All things are lawful for me. All things are not profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. In Romans 6, he's talking about you're either mastered by sin or you're mastered by the Lord. Uh, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. They're temporal. Yet the body is not for fornication. But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now God is only, has not only raised up the Lord, but he will raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Uh, may it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? But, for he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he says, avoid, flee uh, fornication. Those are sins that a man commits are usually outside the body. But fornication is a direct violation of the body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, obviously, which is His. So the idea is, we have come to the Lord... To move away from sin and to move towards righteousness. That won't save us. Salvation is by grace, through faith. And now with that security, lordship then begins to mature us towards what God is bringing us to. The danger here is to think that it is our behavior that saves us. It is our trust in Christ that saves us. But that salvation is so that we can now struggle with lordship to avoid sin and move towards righteousness and sanctification. Uh, Really important. Now, um, we get this uh, clearly in the context that God is both creator and redeemer, But our confession is, Jesus is Lord. So where does that come from? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If God is both our uh, creator and our redeemer, uh, then uh, why are we calling Jesus Lord in that sense? In Acts chapter 2, verse 25... Peter is speaking the first sermon at Pentecost. Uh, We just observed Pentecost. So he he says these words in uh, verse uh, 25. Uh, For David says of him, speaking of Christ, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now Peter says, David wrote this, but David wasn't writing about himself. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried... And his tomb is with us to this day. It's possible in the area where Peter is talking. That he could even point over to the tomb of David. And say David's dead. His body saw corruption. And so because he was a prophet. And he knew that God had sworn to him an oath. To seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned in Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Jesus' body did not suffer normative decay, and his soul was not abandoned. In Hades, he he rose on the third day. This Jesus God raised up, which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, because he ascended, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Talking about the tongues that they were going. It is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So, Jesus is given the place of, uh, by his Father of being Lord and Messiah. That's why Jesus says, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, Paul tells us, in the context of the resurrection. The only one who is not under the authority of Jesus in all creation is God the Father. And at the end of the kingdom time, Jesus will return that to the Father that God may be all in all. I have no idea what that means, so don't ask me. Okay. And it's caused too many people to fight too many battles and split up too many people. Uh, so I don't want to get into it. Now, ultimately, Jesus humbled himself, and Philippians 2 says that, therefore, God has highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, the name Jesus, Yeshua, is that shortened version of the yud Vavhe, the name of God, the Lord saves, Yeshua, that's That's what Yeshua is, the Lord saves. It's salvation. That's His name. You shall call Him Yeshua, for He shall save His people from their sins. And so, He is Savior, but He is Savior uh, and Lord and Messiah. Right? So, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord. To the glory of God the Father. In other words, all lordship is placed in the person of Jesus or Yeshua. However you want to call his name. And that is critical because that becomes the confession of faith. We say Jesus is Lord. Now, the true confession of faith that we have is found in several scriptures... We want to take a look at those really quickly. Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 8 to 13. Quoting Deuteronomy, Paul says, What does the scripture say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, in your mind. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus, and believe in your heart, your mind, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mind, the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Notice the confession doesn't lead you to righteousness. The, The process of righteousness is a matter of the heart, not the mouth. We can get people to say anything. So, the heart has to be altered. The heart has to be focused on God. And then the mouth confesses. And when the heart and the mouth are in that agreement, the mind and the uh, mouth are in agreement, then we move down the road to righteousness. Now we see that pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul makes it clear that it's not just saying magic words. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says... When he's talking about spiritual gifts. Uh, Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans you were led astray to the mute idols however you were led. I love that verse. I won't get into it now. Uh, But he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that transforms us inside, causes us to believe, causes us to then confess Jesus is Lord. Just getting some... You can get a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. You can get a little kid to say Jesus is Lord. Don't confuse that with a profession of faith. A profession of faith is a person who believes God raised Jesus from the dead and He is Lord, boss of me. He can tell me what to do, and I will obey him. Because he rose from the dead, having justified uh, paying for my sins, and and now lives to lead me in all ways of righteousness. So, uh, true faith and confession of Jesus as Lord is based on the presence and activity of the Spirit of God. So, Lordship rightly places us in relationship with God the Father, through Jesus as Lord, by means of the Holy Spirit given to dwell in us. So the essence of our faith is really Lordship, not Saviorhood. And the confession of our faith is Lordship, not Saviorhood. And the pathway of our faith is Lordship, not Saviorhood. One of the problems is that we talk to people about making Jesus their Savior and not making Him their Lord. If He is your Lord, He saves you. But if you just call Him Savior and not Lord, that doesn't work. And Jesus made it clear in the passage we began with. Why do you call me Lord? Why are you using the word Lord? which means master and authority over you, and then don't do what I say. What was the Great Commission? Baptize them and teach them to observe, to do all that I have commanded you. We can't get away from obedience as the pathway of our salvation. It doesn't save us. But when we are saved, it is the pathway wherein we are to walk. And that pathway is a struggle. It is the pathway to life, not the pathway to death. It is the pathway of obedience, not the pathway of sin. And that's okay because what happens is the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. And in our mind and in our heart, there's a part of us that says, I want to obey God. And there's a part of us inside that goes, not today, we're going to do it this way. And that battle is going to take us to Romans chapter 7. That battle that Paul talks about between the mind and the flesh. The spirit and the flesh are at odds, not the Torah and the, and the spirit. The, the Torah and the flesh are at odds, not the spirit and the Torah, right? Right? So the struggle is not against the Torah. The struggle is against the flesh and against the world and against the devil that wants to thwart everything that God's doing, but he's not going to get to do it. In the meantime, though, we have quite a wrestling match going on, a spiritual battle where our mind wants to follow God and our flesh doesn't want to follow God. And we have to set our mind on the spirit and not on the flesh, or we will fail. But that's for next week, and we'll deal with that uh, in that context. So let's pray.